unrelating to this. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Thanks for joining us for February 24th, Saturday reading of the Arapahoe County News. My name is Tim Elliott. Today, I'll be reading the following main articles. Former Aurora police officer appeals homicide conviction and Elijah McLean death by Colleen Slevin, Associated Press. Aurora Council braces for Monday showdown over Gaza resolution, migrant, busing, and more by Max Levy, Sentinel, Colorado staff writer. Inglewood students learn from Media Pathway by Elizabeth Slay. Victims, loved ones speak at murder sentencing, also by Elizabeth Slay. Voting centers to open in Arapahoe, Douglas counties ahead of presidential primaries by Ellis Arnold. Littleton Public Works Director suddenly parts ways with City, Nina Joss, and other various stories and articles. Former Aurora police officer appeals homicide conviction in Elijah McLean death. A former Colorado police officer is appealing his conviction by a jury for his role in the death of Elijah McLean, a 23-year-old black man who died after being stopped by police in a Denver suburb in 2019. Lawyers for Randy Rodima filed a notice of appeal with the state appeals court on Wednesday. A jury convicted Rodima last October of criminally negligent homicide, which is a felony, and misdemeanor third-degree assault. He was sentenced to 14 months in jail at a hearing last month in which McLean's mother called him a bully with a badge. McLean's death received little attention in 2019 but gained renewed interest the following year as mass protests swept the nation over the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police. It became a rallying cry for critics of racial injustice in policing. McLean was stopped by police in Aurora as he walked home from a store while listening to music. At the time, he was wearing a face mask, and a 911 caller reported he looked suspicious. Within seconds, another officer put his hands on McLean, beginning a struggle that lasted about 20 minutes before McLean was restrained, and paramedics injected him with a powerful sedative, ketamine. The coroner's office initially could not determine how McLean died, leading the local prosecutor to decide against bringing any criminal charges. But it updated the autopsy report in 2021, finding that McLean died of an overdose of ketamine after being forcibly restrained by police. Rodima, who was fired from the Aurora Police Department after his conviction, was the only one of three police officers indicted in McLean's death to be found guilty. The two others were acquitted. Two paramedics were convicted in December in the third trial and final trial of first responders in McLean's death. Rodima was tried with another officer, Jason Rosenblatt, and Rodima's lawyers said the decision to join their trials together was among a list of issues they would be challenging. Another was whether his indictment should have been dismissed because of alleged errors in the instructions given to grand jurors. Other issues could still be raised when Rodima files an opening brief in the appeal, they said. The state attorney general's office, which prosecuted the case, had no comment on the appeal, spokesperson Lawrence Pacheco said. Aurora Council braces for Monday showdown over Gaza resolution, migraine, busing, and more. Aurora City Council will consider five proposals dealing with international conflict and the future of Aurora's justice system on Monday, revisiting topics that have in the past brought throngs of protesters to City Hall back-to-back-to-back resolutions that would limit the busing of immigrants into Aurora, 
terminate a call for bids to privatize the city's public defender's office, and declare support for a ceasefire in the ongoing Israel-Hamas war are all up for a vote February 26th. The council is also scheduled to vote for the first time on ramping up its mandatory minimum sentencing guidelines for shoplifting and rolling out new mandatory minimum jail sentences for diners who flee Aurora restaurants without paying. Members of the public can watch the meeting unfold in person starting at 6.30 p.m. in the Paul Tower Council Chamber on the first floor of the Aurora Municipal Center at 15151 East Alameda Parkway. The City of Aurora will also stream the meeting live on its website and YouTube channel. Information about addressing the council in person and instructions for calling into Monday's meeting to commit to comment remotely are available at www.auroragov.org forward slash public comment. Limiting busing of migrants, but not blocking spending on aid. Sponsors of a resolution demanding cities get Aurora's approval before busing in immigrants and homeless people have walked back parts of their proposal after critics last week questioned whether and how it could be enforced. The resolution, which is being jointly sponsored by council members Danielle Jurinsky and Steve Sundberg, says Aurora is proud of its identity as the most diverse and global city in the state, but adds that the city lacks the resources to handle an influx of vulnerable people. Organizations who are transporting migrants or individuals experiencing homelessness into Aurora for temporary housing have not communicated with the city about their plans, which results in financial hardship on the city, the resolution reads. Among other changes, the proposal sponsored by council members Danielle Jurinsky and Steve Sundberg has been stripped of language that indicated the city would no longer allocate public funds, services, or staff resources for migrant support. The change comes after a contentious policy committee meeting where other lawmakers questioned whether the original resolution would have impacted immigrants legally present in the the country or prevented immigrants from being treated by paramedics in an emergency. Jurinsky and Sundberg said they did not intend for the proposal to have those effects. Restrictions on transporting immigrants and homeless people into the city have also been softened, only requiring that the transporting entity first give the city an opportunity to coordinate such assistance. The original resolution would have prohibited such transportation in the absence of a formal agreement. How the city would enforce this part of the proposal became a topic of debate last week, with the city attorney, George Kumantekas, saying that Jurinsky and Sundberg's resolution couldn't be enforced like an ordinance, while Jurinsky insisted that the drivers of unauthorized buses carrying immigrants could be issued tickets. The resolution scope has also been limited, so it would apply only to people being transported into the city for the purposes of temporary housing. Prior to the change, Kathy Alderman of the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless warned that the resolution would have made it harder for homeless veterans to access health care through Aurora's U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs clinics. Additionally, the latest version of the proposal would renew the council's support for the 2017 declaration that Aurora is not a sanctuary city. Halting efforts to privatize public defense in Aurora. Council member Allison Combs will ask the council's conservative majority Monday to set aside its request for law firms to bid on replacing the Aurora Public Defender's Office after months of advocating unsuccessfully for a stop to the process. 
While conservatives have the say, the council won't know whether a private firm could do the same job for less until it receives bids. Council progressives and legal experts have said the city documents soliciting bids underestimates the caseload handled by public defenders and operates under an annual fee model that discourages lawyers from spending time on cases. In her resolution, Combs says the impacts of privatizing public defense along the lines of the request would deprive the city of the oversight provided by the public defender's office and threaten the rights of Aurora's poorest defendants. In Aurora, a low-bid, flat-fee contract and lessened service level will most impact a disproportionate in Aurora, a low bid flat fee contract and lessened service level will most impact a disproportionate population of black African American individuals, those suffering from untreated mental health or medical conditions, and those who are innocent. Combs resolution reads Among the organizations advocating against the privatization effort is the ACLU of Colorado which in a February 21st Instagram post encouraged its followers to pack Aurora City Hall during Monday's council meeting. The city of Aurora has asked firms to submit bids by March 8th and plans to select a finalist or finalist by April 9th for the council's consideration, calling for Israel and Hamas to lay down arms. In October, Aurora City Council became the target of community ire, when one member brought forward a resolution condemning the invasion of Israel and massacres of civilians perpetrated by Hamas. Hundreds showed up to City Hall to comment on the resolution, mostly to criticize its silence on the Palestinians killed during Israel's subsequent bombing of the Gaza Strip. The council ultimately passed the resolution. Before it did, Mayor Mike Kaufman had a hot mic moment while privately addressing the item's sponsor, Francoise Bergen, saying it was a horrible waste of time and that the council was not the Congress of the United States. On Monday, Combs plans to bring forward another resolution weighing in on the conflict in Gaza. This one was drafted by the Colorado-Palestine Lobbying and Advocacy Group, and requested by Palestinians living in Aurora, according to Combs. The resolution calls for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas that would include the release of Israel hostages, as well as Palestinian civilians being held in administrative detention by Israel. It also describes the widespread destruction of civilian infrastructure in the Gaza Strip and loss of life in both Gaza and the West Bank since Israel responded to Hamas' attack. The resolution refers to the Israeli government's actions in the Palestinian territories as ethnic cleansing and apartheid, and demands that displaced Palestinians, past and present, be allowed to return to their homes. The current crisis takes place within a long history of occupation and apartheid and affirms that, for a pathway to lasting peace and justice to be developed, The root causes of this crisis need to be addressed, the resolution reads. Many members of our Aurora community have family and friends who live in Israel, Gaza, and the West Bank, and have deep connections in the region, including many who have lost loved ones there and would not want the importance of their deaths to be diminished or be considered acceptable or justified by Israel's claims of self-defense. Prior to and during the Council's October meeting, conservatives rejected attempts by progressives to amend Bergen's resolution 
to include references to Palestinians, with Jerinsky describing her colleague's resolution as a moment for the Jewish people in the wake of the October 7th attack by Hamas. Jerinsky has said that she plans to travel to Israel next month to volunteer at the civilian jobs of reservist called to fight in the Gaza Strip and help the Israeli military prepare food and supply boxes, promising jail time for shoplifting more than $100 as well as dining and dashing. Jerinsky will also bring a proposal to expand mandatory minimum sentences for shoplifters in response to what city staffers have described as thieves gaming the system to avoid spending time in jail. The council member is the architect of the city's current mandatory minimum law, which since 2022 has dictated that shoplifters convicted of stealing more than $300 worth of goods should spend no fewer than three days in jail. Her ordinance would lower that threshold to $100. Pete Schlute of the Aurora City Attorney's Office told a council committee earlier this month that the Aurora Municipal Court has observed a pattern of thieves stealing just under $300, which he said indicates shoplifters are aware of but undeterred by the existing minimum sentences. Jurinsky's ordinance would also punish second-time shoplifting convictions with a 90-day minimum jail sentence and subsequent convictions with at least 180 days in jail. The ACLU has weighed in on the shoplifting bill, saying the fact that it imposes penalties which exceed those in state law could violate defendants' constitutional rights. Schlute has said Aurora is free to impose stiffer penalties as a home rule city. In a separate ordinance, Jurinsky and Sundberg are proposing to punish dine and dash crimes that defraud restaurants for $15 or more with a three-day minimum jail sentence. The two have said restaurant owners currently don't feel like the city does enough to justify them contacting the police. My hope is that because of this, we start to get that and the, mess, and, the, and the message is made clear that they should at least call and report it, Jurinsky said earlier this month. State currently can't help schools in Aurora across the state with influx of migrant, migrant students. By Yesenia Robles, Chalkbeak, Colorado. Some of Colorado's most diverse school districts, including Aurora and Greeley, are used to waves of immigration bringing in new students in the middle of the year. Recently, families from Burma have moved into Greeley, and Aurora officials recall hundreds of new students from Afghanistan after U.S. troops pulled out. But this year, the mid-year wave is even bigger, with most students arriving from Venezuela and other South American countries, and it is overwhelming some district systems. We're running at about 300% our normal typical average for the school year, said Brett Johnson, Chief Financial Officer for Aurora Public Schools, referring to the number of mid-year enrollments, which are up from the typical 500 to 800 in a year. Schools need everything from new desks and more classroom space to more teachers, bilingual staff, and specialized teachers who can administer screening tests to determine students' levels of English proficiency and help them learn English. But many of the new students from South America arrived after the October 1st cutoff that determines how much per-student state funding each district will get. 
And although government officials refer to this new group of immigrants as migrants, the students do not qualify for money from the Federal Migrant Education Program. What does the Migrant Education Program do? The Migrant Education Program began in 1966 and was designed to support the children of farm worker families. To qualify for the program, students must have parents who work in agriculture or work in the field themselves, usually in temporary or seasonal positions, and must have moved between school districts within the last three years. Some of the children might belong to families who travel around the country following the seasonal availability of farm work. They aren't necessarily new to the country, and many already are fluent in English. Immigration status doesn't matter, just as it doesn't for the students who arrive this semester. By law, all children can access free public education. In Colorado, there were about 4,500 agricultural migrant children aged 1 through 21 this year, fewer than the thousands of new students from South America. The $7.5 million federal allocation for the state helps younger children succeed in school and focuses on keeping teens and young adults up to age 22 in school instead of dropping out to work full-time. Advocates from the program travel to farms or work sites to enroll children in the program and convince older students up to age 22 to stay in school. The program works with families, visiting their homes, supporting their mental health, and figuring out what other barriers might exist for the students to learn. The funding also pays for school supplies, tutoring, and summer programming. A lot of our families have needs that are pretty basic. If we just try to push education on them, they're not ready a lot of times, said Tomas Mahia, Colorado's director for the Migrant Education Program. If we help them be well enough, help the parents and adults be well enough to help the kids, that can really help a lot. The new South American students also need the same types of support. For both groups of students, educators say there's a need to build trust and provide help that goes beyond the classroom. The Greeley School District usually enrolls the largest number of agricultural migrant students in the state. And Greeley also is seeing a wave of non-agricultural migrant students. One school recently enrolled 19 new students in one day. An elementary school is now so full that teachers are starting to operate out of mobile carts, moving from room to room instead of having a classroom. School districts are addressing student needs. The Greeley District's existing Welcome Center, which has always helped the community's immigrant population, is playing a big role in helping the district welcome and make families feel like they belong, said Brian Lemos, Director of Instruction and English Language Development. But the district is also relying on community partners to help families learn to use technology, learn English, and to offer help with housing or employment. There's definitely unique needs, Lemos said. They're new to the country. All of them have needs as far as language acquisition. A lot of these students are coming to us with severe trauma, said Teresa Myers, a spokesperson for the Greeley District. Some of the families from Venezuela, they've been trying to travel for months. Our impact on their mental health services is real. 
Right now, the district has a mental health counselor at every school, but 35 counselor and social worker positions in the district were founded by ESSER dollars that won't be available after September. Now the district is trying to figure out how to keep the much-needed positions. Although Colorado gives school districts extra money to assist students who are learning English, most school districts say they have to use money from their general fund to cover the services they provide because that specific money isn't enough. And since so many of these students arrived after October 1st, the districts didn't get the money for them this year. If students are enrolled next fall, the districts will get money then. In the meantime, school districts are having to hire new staff, including paraprofessionals, to help teachers with larger-than-normal class sizes. In Aurora, we have several instances in which elementary schools come back from Christmas break with almost 100 more kids than before, Johnson said. Legislatures in Colorado are drafting a $24 million proposal to give districts some funding for these mid-year enrollees. It won't be the total funding the districts usually get per student, but it might help. State lawmakers haven't filed the proposal, but there are promising signs it'll pass once they do. Colorado Governor Jared Polis has said he supports sending extra funding to districts enrolling new students, and the proposal is coming from lawmakers on the powerful Joint Budget Committee, which plays a major role in how the state spends its money. Johnson said that Aurora isn't waiting to see that money transferred before hiring needed positions or addressing needs. He hopes the state will reimburse some of the expenses if the money does come. While leaders say they aren't cutting budgets or making adjustments, they are starting to think ahead. Maybe that will mean having roaming teams that can go to the schools most impacted on a short-term basis to deal with the work of helping students new to the country. The hard part is no one knows how long this phenomenon will last, Johnson said. We are trying to start putting in some thought in the long term, if there's a better system. For now, schools are helping new students from South America adapt. When a new student enrolls who is new to the country, it's also a matter of the daily school routines. It's also teaching them the routines of a typical school day, Johnson said. That can take up a lot of time for school staff, but not all schools are receiving high numbers of new students. Schools near shelters, apartments, or housing where agencies have helped migrants get settled are enrolling more students. Educators say they aren't currently thinking about transferring students to different schools to avoid overcrowded classrooms. But Greeley leaders say they have changed enrollment boundaries when schools were getting too full in previous situations. They might consider it if the enrollment boom continues. School educators say, still, they want kids in school. They understand that children must learn, and the faster they can connect them to educators, the better. Inglewood students learn from Media Pathway. Inglewood Public Schools offer many different career pathways, including a well-rounded media literacy program. Educator Carla Schutz said many classes and opportunities are available to students. The Media Pathway is one of the most encompassing pathways that we have in Inglewood schools because it includes broadcast journalism, yearbook, and some design aspects, Schutz said. Inglewood High School Media, 
Student and senior Daniela Tobias said she joined the program when she was a freshman. I didn't really have an idea of what I wanted, Tobias said. As the years went on, I realized this was some, something that I wanted to do. Tobias is planning to attend Colorado State University and will major in journalism with plans to specialize in broadcast journalism. They get the basics, Shute said. Then they hone their skills. Then they get a leadership role so, so these kids leave this program knowing good writing, good interviewing, strong journalistic ethics. They make sure that they understand media literacy for social media, the difference between local media, national media, and it's just so much for them to learn these pieces. Tobias said the program is important to students because of its variety in classes and learnable skills. You can do all kinds of different things, but at the end of the day, you're still learning, Tobias said. I know I am going to go into this in college, so it just gives me a good idea of what I'm going to be doing and what I am going to be learning about. Schutz said many students stay in the pathway throughout high school. Typically about five to six end up want to go on with college education that could lead to a profession in journalism. Schutz, uh, Schutz has 30 years of TV news experience, enjoys passing on her knowledge to the next generation of media professionals. The best part of dealing with high school students is finding that, that love for a different type of writing, Schutz said. They're not writing for English classes. They're writing about their fellow students. Senior Marco Lopez said he and his brother worked hard on live streams for the district. He said he has loved his time in the program. I've enjoyed all the experiences and stuff I've done with Schutz and my peers, Lopez said. Lopez said he will pursue a real estate career and feels the skill he has learned from the program will help him in the future. It's an important program because if you don't enjoy school, you can come to these kinds of classes and you can learn a skill you can use after high school or get a career in it, Lopez said. I think it can really help me with the media aspect of it as I could record my own video and I know how to use editing software now. Shoot said media students cover a little bit of everything. We like to say the yearbook is the love letter to the school so lots of positive memories that you can look back on years from now, Shute said. We operate EHS Media away from Inglewood schools. The state legislature has given us free reign to ethically cover things that are good, bad, ugly, fantastic, and I think that the kids drive the stories that we do. Shute said the students know what's going on in their schools, and they know what changes they want to see, and their media coverage reflects that. The educators said coverage ranges from school lunches to the class schedule to curriculum to diversity. Additionally, she said students localize national events and cover local politics. There's a lot of content, and every student gets a chance to publish whether it's a two-paragraph story because it's their first one to long-form six or even seven interview stories, Shute said. Shute said the students take their content creation seriously because they know their work will be seen by the public. Over time, Shute said the program has evolved from three computers in a small room to state-of-the-art equipment and a larger classroom to accommodate the increase in student interest. We really are trying to make it feel like a newsroom, Shute said. You have to get your story get your interview, and turn it in as quickly as you can. Junior and Pirateer Editor-Chief Serenity Gambrell said she started taking media classes last year because it piqued her interest. 
For me, it's just how much freedom I have, she said. How much freedom I have to tell different stories, to talk to different people, to ask as many questions as I would like, to get as much information as I can. She said she loves bringing together different perspectives on an issue and coordinating it all into her own story. I feel like this is an important program because it is one of those things that shows people how much you can actually do and actually learn if you just sit and dig a little deeper, Gabrielle said. Shute said regardless of where students end up in life, the media program allows them to engage in their community and share their perspectives. The kids are finding something that they love, something that they can expand their knowledge base on whether they're going to be journalists or not, Shute said. They seem to really love it, and they get excited to participate, and that excitement showcases everything in our school. Gamrielle said she plans to pursue investigative journalism or criminal justice and advises younger and future students interested in the program to remain open to its variety. Just be yourself with it. Learn and see where you fit in as a media student and just let your creativity show, Gabrielle said. Victims' loved ones speak at murder sentencing. Kwok Van Nguyen, 31, the Inglewood man who was charged with killing neighbor Patricia Darling Grass for no apparent reason in September 2022, has been officially sentenced to 60 years in prison in a plea bargain. At a, at a February 13th sentencing hearing, many of Grass's family and friends made emotional statements expressing their sorrow over losing the woman they knew as Darlene, someone kind, caring, loving, and welcoming. Lindsay Grass, the victim's daughter, said that for the last 16 and a half months, she has lived her life court date by court date. She expressed that without her mother, there is a void in her life and the lives of her family members, especially her two sons who were very close with their grandmother. The defendant took our simple life and made it a nightmare, Lindsay said. She said Nguyen isn't getting a life sentence and will still be able to see his family and friends, but Grass family is receiving a life sentence as they will never see or talk to her again. Lindsay said due to the events of September 28, 2022, the day of Darlene's death, her sense of security has been taken away. She said she had has anxiety, PTSD, and other mental health struggles due to the murder of her mother. Lindsay also said she didn't feel she received the best victim advocacy support or communication throughout the legal process regarding her mother's murder. As a result, Lindsay plans to start a nonprofit for families and victims of violent crimes. Despite all of these struggles, Lindsay said she will carry on her mother's legacy and no longer allow Nguyen's action to control her life. Justice for Dar has been served, Grass said. The plea bargain was described in a February 6th Arapahoe County District Court hearing as 48 years for second-degree murder and a consecutive 12 years for attempted second-degree murder. Arapahoe County District Court Judge David Carpel, who accepted the plea bargain and sentencing, said at the hearing that he understands what it means to live court date to court date. He added he was moved by Lindsay's strength and determination and was struck by her words. Your mother would be proud of you. 
Carpel told Lindsay. The 2022 affidavit in the case says Nguyen shot and killed Gray Grass, 68, from outside her Inglewood home at 4395 South Ilati Street as she stood in the front doorway shortly before 10 p.m. No reason was given for the actions of Nguyen, who lived across the street at 4386 South Ilati Street. Nguyen also gave a statement at the hearing and expressed his regret by asking for forgiveness. I know every life is precious, and my actions didn't reflect that, Nguyen said. He said he will work to better himself in hopes to one day be known as a father and a husband, and not just a murderer. At the time of his arrest, Nguyen was wearing a tactical vest and had a rifle with a magazine and rounds inside, a pistol, a gun belt with a pistol holder, and extra rifle magazines. The affidavit says, Grass roommate Joseph St. Peter was there the night she was killed and also spoke at the February 13th hearing. She was the type of person the world is missing right now, he said. So kind, so generous. According to the affidavit, St. Peter told police that he and Grass saw the silhouette of a person who came by their front patio. Grass had turned on the patio light, and St. Peter was holding her arm to help steady her when he heard multiple shots fired. The shots hit Grass in her head and arm, the affidavit says, and she was found by police at the threshold of her front door, where she was pronounced dead at 10.09 p.m. Officers did a sweep of the Nguyen home, where they found numerous guns and ammunition, the affidavit says. Nguyen's family told police they weren't aware of his weapons, the affidavit says. At the hearing, Nguyen's sister, Few, spoke on behalf of his family and expressed their condolences and sorrow to the Grass and St. Peter families. Nguyen's mother, father, and wife all gave the same account to officers of the events that night before the shooting. The family ate dinner together between 7 and 8 p.m., and after dinner, they played with Nguyen's children. Nguyen's mother, father, and wife said Nguyen had exhibited no signs of suicidal or homicidal ideations, did not suffer from any mental illness, and took no medications, the affidavit says. None of the family members reported that Nguyen had any problems with the neighbors, and his mother told officers he is always very friendly and helpful with the people who live close by. Students of all ages embrace art. Rock's Art Center features work in third annual student show by Nina Joss. A small bronze sculpture of a finch, an acrylic painting of a woman in a garden, a colored pencil drawing of a house. These are a few of the pieces of artwork that were on display at the third annual student art show at the Rock's Arts Gallery in Littleton's Aspen Grove which concluded February 17th. The co-op gallery, supported by a non-profit organization called the Roxboro Arts Council, regularly shows the artwork of 40 local artists. The gallery also offers fine art arts classes for adults and several educational opportunities for youth. From oil painting to graphite to sculptures, 
Student artists ranging in age from 11 to their retirement year showed off their masterpieces. Over two dozen of the gallery's adult students entered their work. The gallery also selected four, child, four child and teen students who worked with an art mentor to enter their work in the show. We just really wanted to honor these students, said Karen Kennedy, the show coordinator. Marianne Leek, an instructor at the gallery, added that putting art in front of the public is an important experience for artists. I think that's really important for growth as an artist to have critics, she said. It can be taken personal or you can use it as a source to educate yourself. The show is juried by Colorado artist Diane Fetchenbach, who specializes in pastels, oil, and watercolor painting. Student Valerie Tretchter, 72, said it has been a lifelong dream for her to learn to paint. I had to wait for retirement for the personal time to invest and enjoy the self-expression and creativity that painting allows, she wrote in an email to the Littleton Independent. In her oil painting class with instructor Valerie Schneider, Tretchter developed skills to create a piece titled Arches National Park, Hanging Rock. She was one of the two second-place winners in the show. Each year I'm reminded of the joy that art brings to so many different people, she wrote. I love seeing people's faces as they look at each painting for the first time. Allie Buchholz, an 11-year-old artist, attends weekly lessons at the gallery with artist Patricia Jenkins. For the show, she entered a colored pencil drawing of a horse entitled Freedom. Buchholz said her favorite part of the show was seeing the artwork of her fellow artists. When I look at artwork, I feel like I know the person who created already, she wrote in an email. When I draw something, I feel as if I am transferring my personality on paper. Therefore, looking at other people's art was like meeting everyone there through pictures. For Buchholz, Art is a reminder that the world can be anything you want it to be. It is all about your mindset and the people influencing your perception, she wrote. Art can portray all of these aspects. I know my art and my mentor changed everything around me. Other students said being in the show was a confidence-building experience. I am thrilled to receive the critiques of so many talented folks, wrote Kitty Haggerty, a retiree who won an honorable mention for her oil painting titled Morning Rain. I have learned to be brave, especially around the kind folks at the gallery. Artist Lisa Drake won Best of Show for her painting, a portrait titled Riley. Kennedy, who coordinated the show, said creating spaces to enjoy and learn art is important. I think it's so good to have culture that lasts and grows, she said. It's something that you can always appreciate. Whether it's a two-dimensional art, three-dimensional art, theater, it really adds something special to your life. Leek, who teaches painting classes, said she enjoys teaching technical skills, history, and building a community within her classes. We talk through a lot of the process, and we have a lot of fun, she said. We laugh and talk about incidental things. It's just a wonderful kind of family of artists. Voting centers to open in Arapaho, Douglas counties ahead of presidential primaries. 
Locations open February 26th. Mail ballots aren't the only way to vote in Colorado. For voters, for voters who prefer to cast a ballot in person or who have disabilities or need assistance, voting centers will open February 26th ahead of presidential primaries. Voters who require language help can also get assistance by voting in person, according to Arapahoe County officials. At voter service and polling centers, people can register to vote, update their voter registration, or drop off a voted ballot. They can also go to a voter center to obtain a replacement ballot if their mail ballot was damaged, lost, or not received. Primary election day is March 5th. Voters will select presidential candidates from the Republican and Democratic parties who will then face each other in the November election. President Joe Biden, a Democrat, is facing challengers from his own party and a slate of Republicans are seeking their party's nomination in Colorado, including former President Donald Trump and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. February 12th was the final day for any voters to change their party affiliations ahead of the March 5th primary, though unaffiliated voters can can through Election Day in November. February 25th is the final day for voters to get ballots in their mail for the March 5th primaries. After that, voters can bring ballots to voting centers and drop boxes. Colorado's primary election for U.S. Congress, the state legislature, and other offices is June 25th. Here's a list of voting center locations in Arapahoe and Douglas counties. Arapahoe County, Aurora, Arapahoe County Center Point Plaza at 1498 East Alameda Drive. Aurora, Martin Luther King Jr. Library at 9898 East Colfax Avenue. Centennial, Smoky Hill Library at 5430 South Biscay Circle. Central Centennial Area, Arapahoe County Lima Plaza at 6954 South Lima Street. Littleton, Arapahoe Community College at 5900 South Santa Fe Drive. Byers, Kelver Library at 585 South Main Street. Centers are open 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday and on Saturday, March 2nd, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. and March 5th, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Douglas County, Castle Rock, Douglas County Kirk Hall at 500 Fairgrounds Road. Highlands Ranch, Northridge Recreation Center at 8800 South Broadway. Highlands Ranch, Douglas County Parks and Trails Building at 9651 South Quebec Street. Parker, Parker Library at 20105 East Main Street. Centers are open 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday, and on Saturday, March 2nd, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., and March 5th. 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. About registering to vote. Colorado election law allows voter registration up to and on election day, according to Douglas County. Those who live in Douglas County and plan to vote in the primary election but are not yet registered to vote can register at douglasvotes.com through February 26th. After that, they will need to visit a voter center, the county website says. Littleton Public Works Director suddenly parts ways with City. 
Littleton Public Works Director Keith Reister has suddenly left his job at the city. The city made the announcement in a Facebook post this week saying that city manager Jim Blecklenburg accepted Reister's resignation, which went into effect immediately on February 21st. Deputy City Manager Mike Gent has assumed temporary leadership of the department, and the city is in the process of assigning an interim director to the role, Becklenburg said. Reister was hired for the role in 2017 and told the Littleton Independent that his resignation gives him the opportunity to do consulting in the private sector and eliminates his 90-minute commute to the city. I've been a consultant for a long time, he said, so I'll just continue to work with organizations out there, work on organizations being successful and transforming, transforming, and those kinds of things, which is what I'm good at. Asked about the nature of his departure, Reister said, it happens. Just, you know, change in life and all those kinds of things, he said. And... Becklenburg declined to comment further on circumstances about Reister's separation. The resignation came during a busy time in the Public Works Department, which is in charge of engineering, traffic, and street and grounds maintenance. The department is leading plans for street safety improvements in the wake of recent pedestrian and cyclist deaths. Reister presented to the City Council on this topic on February 6th. The department is also in charge of capital improvement plans across the city, including the Quad Road Improvement Project at Santa Fe Drive and Mineral Avenue. Last year, Reister was involved in conversations about the physical status of Geneva Village, which was one of the considerations that led to the city council's decision to redevelop the property. Becklenburg said he appreciates Reister's efforts over the years and wishes him well in his future endeavors. Keith really led progress in so much of our infrastructure maintenance development, on master planning for all components of the infrastructure, and updating maintenance practices, he said. He's also built a great team that's going to help us to meet the challenge going forward. So all of those talents will be missed as Keith makes his way on the next thing for himself. Reister said he is confident the Public Works Department will continue with strength and success. The city's got a great team, he said. We've got a great team in Public Works. There's a lot of great things going on, and so the future is going to be great. Prior to working for the city of Littleton, Reister was the Public Works Director for 12 years, for the city of Loveland and held several separate consulting and operational roles. He resigned from his position in the city of Loveland in 2014 after being placed on administrative leave for an internal investigation, as reported by the Loveland Reporter Herald. There was a settlement agreement between Reister and the city at the time. Reister said the situation had to do with a change in leadership in the city at the time. To build or not to build? Centennial Airport, local officials to discuss future. By Taylor Shaw. As communities throughout Colorado need to build more housing to alleviate the rising costs on residents, the Centennial Airport has come into play, and with it, 
A tough question. Should land be developed for housing even when the airport advises against it? It's an issue that officials will grapple with during the airport's new Part 150 Airport Noise Compatibility Study. I think over the next year, especially, there's going to be a lot of push for an AFL, and I think that creates a natural tension, obviously, around an airport. Centennial Airport, located in Arapahoe County, is one of the nation's busiest for general aviation, and for more than a year, residents who live nearby have raised concerns about that traffic, the associated noise, and possible lead pollution. A group, Quiet Skies Over Arapahoe County, has been advocating for changes. The Part 150 study is a voluntary Federal Aviation Administration program that sets guidelines for airport operators to document aircraft noise exposure and establish abatement and compatible land use programs, according to the airport. The study is expected to take two years to complete. Kate Andrus, the project manager for the study, discussed how it will work during a February meeting with the airport's Community Noise Roundtable, a recommending body that aims to work with the airport to find ways to reduce and mitigate the impact of aircraft noise on surrounding communities. Andrus said there are two main components to the study, noise exposure maps and a noise compatibility program. The maps show existing and future aircraft sound exposure levels according to the airport. Centennial Airport's most recent maps were created around 2016. The noise compatibility program, on the other hand, recommends measures designated or designed to reduce noise and incompatible land uses within the noise exposure area, according to the airport. I think the encroachment that you're dealing with here is very real, and we do see a lot of opportunity to dive into the land using planning side of things for this Part 150, Andrus said. She said her team will look at a surrounding community's current and future land use maps to see where planned developments are located and assesses if there could be a problem based on flight paths and noise contours. Noise contours are a series of lines on a map that show existing or potential areas of significant aircraft noise exposure, according to Boca Raton Airport. Although the Part 150 study can provide recommendations on what types of developments are and are not compatible, the airport cannot dictate what communities build. The engagement with the local jurisdictions are super important. Because you need to have those conversations, Andrea said, adding that her team will try to get the buy in of the jurisdictions to make sure that they're not creating new non compatible land uses. In light of Colorado's housing crisis, Fronaffel said that there is typically some open space around airports that can appear ripe for potentially affordable housing. That's something that we're looking at from a land use standpoint, he said. And that's kind of a big concern moving forward, whether we say you shouldn't build it, or maybe there are some construction standards that need to be in place, you know, to make sure it's compatible as you can make it, so to speak. Last year in Lone Tree, for example, 
The city council approved a townhome and condominium development despite the FAA's opposition due to the development's proximity to Centennial Airport. A city staff report said there will be notices to future residents of the potential impacts of purchasing property near the airport and of the developer's plan to take steps such as conducting noise testing after construction. Fronaffel said that, that in his perfect world, all the jurisdictions and counties would have the same set of noise controls. Right now, that's not the case. Some of them are operating off our older noise contours, he said. And then, at a maximum, it would be great to have them all on the same page and have all the same viewpoint of zoning depending on where they are in relation to the airport. That's probably going to be difficult to achieve, but that's our goal. Residents can learn more about the Part 150 study, as well as submit questions and comments online at APA150NoiseStudy.com. Arapahoe County Homelessness Programs Face Funding Challenges by Nina Joss. On a single night in January 2023, 442 people were experiencing homelessness in Arapahoe County, excluding those in the city of Aurora. And this is only a fraction of the number of people in the county who are homeless, according to experts. Individuals can be missed in the annual point-in-time count, part of, an, part of a national effort to get a snapshot of how many people are homeless. Some may have the luck to sleep in a motel or friend's home as the count takes place. And not everyone experiencing homelessness is sleeping on the streets. Still, the picture is helpful to Arapahoe County as it works to coordinate solutions to homelessness with regional partners. Yet, it is also facing a funding crisis as American Rescue Plan Act, or ARPA, funds granted during the COVID-19 pandemic dry up. The funds have supported many programs meant to reduce homelessness. For instance, $1.5 million went towards an eviction reduction program that helped nearly 700 families avoid evictions, according to the county. The county also put $10 million towards an affordable housing grant program that helped create more than 665 housing units throughout the county. But as these funds run out, the county is concerned about what comes next. The county is contending with an increase in demand for services at a time when costs and the population are rising. County officials are warning about the possibility of budget cuts to its homelessness reduction programs and more. ARPA funding has presented us with a unique opportunity to invest in the well-being and prosperity of our community. Carrie Warren Gully, chair, uh, pick up, chair of the Arapahoe County Commissioners, said in a press release. Pick up. ARPA funding has presented us with a unique opportunity to invest in the well-being and prosperity of our community. Carrie Warren, Carrie Warren Gully, chair of the Arapahoe County Commissioners, said in a press release. As ARPA wraps up, we need to be realistic and strategic about next steps. Commissioners and staff are looking for regional solutions when it comes to homelessness. For years, organizations in the county worked separately to address homelessness. 
In 2021, commissioners decided to kick off a regional approach by creating the Homelessness Coordinating Committee. This group includes over 100 local government entities, nonprofit organizations, businesses, and other partners. And this year, the committee issued its strategic plan with six high-priority recommendations. One priority involves designing a standardized client intake protocol so agencies can coordinate care. Having full information sharing among partner providers about each client and transparency about next steps in the client's process will enable a collaborative case management approach, the plan says. The plan also proposes that within three years, service providers all use an existing shared management system to gather and study data about the needs of people experiencing homelessness. Other aspects of the plan focus on educating communities about their unhoused neighbors and expanding affordable housing inventory in the county. Homelessness continues to be one of the most pressing challenges in our region and across the state and has been compounded by a lack of affordable housing options, Warren Gully said. Catherine Smith, Arapahoe County's Director of Community Resources, said the strategic plan formalizes the work the county and its partners have been doing for years. The plan allows for us as an entire committee to be working toward these initiatives, she said. We're all working towards pieces of this separately, currently, but how can we come together as as a region and really work together on solutions. Until February 23rd, the commissioners are asking for community feedback on for, on potential solutions to the county's funding challenge. Residents can share their ideas at https colon forward slash forward slash www.arapahoeco.gov forward slash alert underscore detail dot php. Thanks again for joining us for the Arapahoe County News. My name is Tim Elliott. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.